Um, if you would like to open your Bible to Matthew 5, 33. Oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of God. All right. Well, once again, good morning. It's great to be with you. Great to gather together. Again, we're one church in two places, some of us here in person, others on Zoom. But it's great to be gathered together as a church family and to continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount, thinking about discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world today. And so let's pray and then get to work looking at the verses that you just heard read. Our God, thank you for gathering us together around your word this morning, and I pray, we pray, that as we talk about our words, as we talk about speech, that you would be with us this morning, that you would give us understanding and insight, but also the powerful presence of your spirit, that we might be transformed and changed, that our words might be healed. So be with us now during this time, we ask, praying together in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount in which we're exploring what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. We're talking about the heart attitudes and the conduct that should characterize the followers of Jesus in the world. And we're in a series, a part of the sermon at this moment, these past few weeks, where we're thinking carefully about discipleship and action. We're asking the question, if you're following Jesus, what does it look like in some of the most practical areas of your life? And so two weeks ago, we talked about discipleship and anger. Last week, discipleship and sexuality. And today, we're going to talk about discipleship and speech, the words that you say, the way we talk to each other. And I can think of few topics that are as practical and as relevant as this one, because there's not a person in this room who hasn't hurt someone else by the words that you've said. Nor is there a person in this room who hasn't been hurt by words that have been said to you. To paraphrase one of the Proverbs, our words have immense power. Words give life or they take it. They're either poison or fruit you can choose. That's what one of the Proverbs says in kind of updated language. And that's true. Our words have immense power. And not only are our words powerful, that is to say, when they're spoken, they do something. But also, our words are revealing. You can learn a lot about what's going on in a person's heart by paying attention to what comes out of their mouth. They reveal things. The mouth always speaks what the heart is full of. And so, we can't actually really talk about discipleship without being willing to talk about speech and words and the way we communicate with each other. And so we're going to do that. The Bible says a lot about the use of words and speech. This passage here in Matthew 5 makes a really important contribution to that topic. And so today we're going to see first why it matters the way you use your words. Why does it matter? The second thing we'll 
See is the kinds of words that you should use, how you should speak. And then last, how you can. So why do our words matter? What kind of words we should be speaking and how we can do just that. So first, why do our words matter? Now, in order to understand this, I need to unpack a little bit of the text that's here in Matthew 5. Again, I'll admit, this is a part of Jesus's teaching, which can on the surface be a little confusing because here's what Jesus is doing. He's comparing his understanding of the Old Testament of God's law to the way that other religious leaders of his day understood it. So what he's doing each week, as we've been seeing, is he's taking a tradition or a set of teaching and he's saying to his audience, to his followers, you've heard that it was said, this is what everybody else believes, but I tell you, and then he gives us the true meaning or the true intention of God's law. He goes a little bit deeper. Now in this passage, he's talking about making oaths, swearing or taking a vow. And he says, you all know in the Old Testament, we all agree that if you make an oath, if you make a vow, if you make a promise, you need to fulfill it. Now, Jesus is interacting with that body of teaching. And on one hand, we could say, yeah, that makes sense, of course. If you give your word, if you make an oath, you should fulfill it. You should keep your word. We say yes. But what Jesus then goes on to do is to actually clarify something. Because what had happened in the Old Testament as the tradition of that teaching went on is people started to say, you know, the name of God is so holy. The name of God is so pure and so perfect that we should never use it lightly. And as a result, people stopped making oaths in the name of God. They would swear to other things like, I swear on Jerusalem or I swear on my own head. And so what they were doing was saying, we want to reverence and, and sort of keep holy the name of God. And so when we make oaths, when we make promises, when we give our word, we're going to do so by something lesser. And the result of that over time, maybe not intended originally, but the intention over the result of that over time was people began to think an oath made to something less was less binding. And so if I'm swearing to something that's not that important, then the word or the reliability of what I've promised is a little more flimsy. That's what had happened. And so Jesus comes along and he sees what people are doing regarding oaths and vows. And he goes right into the heart of the matter. Let me read to you verses 34, 35, and 36. Jesus says, but I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. Don't even swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black, and some of us less hair privileged than others say yes, amen. We know that. Now what's Jesus doing? This is quite fascinating. Jesus is saying, you all have a tradition, again, to his original audience, of saying, because we don't wanna take the name of God lightly, we're going to make our oaths on all these other things. But Jesus says, you're missing the point completely, because everything in this world belongs to God. Everything is his. So you say, we're going to swear by heaven, but guess what? That's God's throne. This city, this, this is the city of the great king. 
Even your own life, even the hairs on your head were made by God and belong to him. In other words, here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying there's not one square inch of this universe that doesn't ultimately belong to God and to reflect him. And so to be a person in this world is to live your entire life in the very presence of God himself. That's why, by the way, and this isn't the point of today's sermon, but that's why actually Christian theology would say there really is no divide between the sacred and the secular. You know, sometimes we talk about, well, that's sacred or that's holy, but that's secular. But the fact of the matter is, you can't find even an inch of air in this universe that God's presence isn't permeating. And so what Jesus is trying to say is, it's good that you want to reverence God's name, but you miss the fact that actually everything is permeated with the presence of God. Now, think about then your speech and the way you use your words. Jesus is saying, do you see now why your words matter? Why it matters that you speak truthfully and in a way that is trustworthy and reliable? It's because every single word that you've ever spoken is spoken in the presence of God himself. Every person you speak to is made in the image of God and every word ever spoken is made in the presence of God. Jesus is saying, you cannot get outside the reality of God in your life. And so your words are to be uttered with great care, with great caution, with great concern, because every single word you've ever uttered is made in the very presence of God himself. Now, friends, let me show you, first of all, that's bad news. <laughs> this is a hard truth. This is a hard statement. Here's why. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is giving a little bit more teaching about this. Let me read to you these verses, and if they do not scare you, it's because you're not listening, okay? Matthew chapter 12, some of the most terrifying verses in the Bible. Jesus says, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. By your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words, you will be condemned. Friends, do you hear what Jesus is saying? <laughs> you have to give an account one day for every word you've spoken. The careless ones, the words that cut people down, the words that weren't life-giving. You're going to give an account for them, Jesus says. And then he goes on to say, by your own words, you'll be acquitted. And by your own words, you'll be condemned. Here's what Jesus is saying, to use a bit of an analogy. Imagine if your iPhone, you pressed record on one of your voice memos and you let it record all day. And then you played it back at the end of the night. Jesus is saying, don't you realize that you would fall far short of your own standards if you listened to the words that you spoke? The way you asked other people to live with integrity and kindness and justice, but then you look at the way you spoke, Jesus said, your own words would condemn you. So what's Jesus saying? On one hand, this truth, we speak every word we speak in the presence of God. This is a hard truth. I say this is someone who uses words for a living. This is sobering. But on the other hand, it's not just bad or hard news. The fact that we speak every word in the presence of God is also incredibly good news. Let me read to you another verse, this from the book of Malachi. This is one of the more stunning verses in the Old Testament. 
Malachi in chapter three says this, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and he heard. And a book of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. To paraphrase, do you know what Malachi is saying? When God's people talk to each other, in ways that honor God and are encouraging and life-giving to each other, God writes it down in his journal and it lasts forever. God cares about the words that you speak and the words that we speak to each other that are life-giving and beautiful and kind and encouraging, they're lasting in the very presence of God. So I ask myself and I ask you, in God's book of remembrance, how long is your section? Have we said things that are actually kind and encouraging to each other? See, this is why our words matter. Because every word spoken is spoken to a person made in the image of God and spoken in the very presence of God himself. Both good news, but also frightening news. So that leads us now to ask, well, okay, if that's why our words matter, what kind of words should we speak? Look with me, if you would, at verse 37 of our passage. Because Jesus says... Quite clearly, these are the kinds of words that you should speak. Verse 37, all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. What kind of word should you speak? In the words of Jesus, total truthful words. Simply truthful. Words that are reliable, words that are filled with integrity, words that are trustworthy. Now, think of it this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor here in London uh, about 70 years ago. And he was preaching on this passage. And he said, you know, we all know that to commit perjury would be such a terrible thing. You go into a courtroom of law and the judge asks you to take an oath. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth? And we would in that moment realize to lie, to, to not be truthful would be a terrible thing. It's called perjury. And Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, yeah, but remember, you live your entire life in the presence of the great judge of the universe. And so he says, to tell a lie, any lie, is as bad as perjury for Christians, since we should always speak as those who live in the very presence of God. What he's trying to say is, we don't need to take oaths. Not literally, there may be places and moments in your life where you have to take an oath for some civic duty, fine. But the mindset for the Christian is that your entire life is before the great judge. And so we should speak with such a rigorous commitment to truthfulness and integrity in every word that we speak. Now you say, well, of course, well, I, you know, I get that. I mean, yeah, I've, you know, struggled a little bit with white lies here and there, but we all know that truthfulness is a good idea. But actually, we have to go much deeper because in the Bible, lying, which we think of as the opposite of truthfulness, lying is much, much more than giving false or inaccurate information. You see, it was St. Augustine who, all the way back in the fourth century, did a survey of the Bible on this topic. And when he got to the end, he realized that lying, according to the Bible, is any statement that is made with an intention to deceive. Okay, lying is not just, here's a factually incorrect statement. 
Lying is any statement that is made whose intention is to mislead or to deceive another person. I'll give you an example. Let's say there was a theft at your office and you know who was responsible. We'll call this person person A. You know person A did it. But person A is a good friend of yours, someone that you care about and like and you want to have their back. So when the investigators are called in, they say to you, hey, such and such happened. This crime was committed. Do you know anything that can help us? Did you see anything happen? And you say to the investigators, well, I did see person B here that evening. Now that might be true. Person B may have been there. But the purpose of your statement was to deceive And lying, according to the Bible, is any statement that actually is seeking to mislead or misdirect the person we're talking to. And if we think about truthfulness and lying with that broad category, what we begin to realize is it's far more permeating all of our lives than we'd care to admit. For example, euphemism. Have you ever said to someone, oh, that's that's interesting. That's a really interesting original point of view. And what you mean is that's the worst idea I've ever heard. Or how about this? That sounds so fun. I wish I could come. I would love to be there, but we're going to be out of town that night. When instead, you're going to be on Netflix. Or how about this? A little bit more seriously. Someone has hurt you. Someone has wronged you. And they come to you and say, oh, you're okay, right? Everything good? Are we good? And you say, oh, yeah, it's fine. Everything's great. But inside, you're hurt. You're sad. You're angry. Now, what are all the, we might call some of those things white lies or little lies. We're just trying to keep the peace. But Jesus is saying any statement that's not having as its intention total truthfulness and trustworthiness is less than the standard that a Christian, a disciple should be living into. You say, come on, is it really that big of a deal, a little white lie here and there? It is if you realize who you're making that little white lie to. Lewis Smedes is an ethicist, and he says that when we tell a lie to our neighbor, even the smallest ones, we take away the opportunity of that person to respond to reality. So he gives this example. If I tell a person who wants to buy my car that it's in splendid mechanical shape, although in fact it needs a new valve job, I rob him of the freedom to make a decision on the basis of reality. If you pretend, for example, that you're pleased with your daughter's report card, but in fact you're upset because she's not been studying, you take away her freedom to respond to your anger and force her to respond to a charade instead. And then he makes this conclusion, and I want us to hear this. Every lie, even the smallest ones, demean our neighbors because we're treating them like non-persons. Jesus is saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Speak in ways that are truthful and trustworthy and reliable. Why? Because you're talking to a brother or sister. You're talking to someone made in the image of God. And so this rigorous commitment to truthfulness and trustworthiness is the standard for the words that the disciple of Jesus should speak. But here's the question then, how can we do this? I mean, how can we be individuals? How can we be a church that the words we say are marked by such a commitment to truthfulness that if we say yes, it always means yes. And if we say no, it always means no.
Well, that's what the rest of the sermon is about. And the first thing to say is this, well, how can we do this? We have to first wrestle with the question, why don't we do this in the first place? Why is it that we often mislead and misdirect and we don't tell the whole truth or we shade the truth? And here's the answer. Because of fear and because of insecurity. I want to challenge you to think about this today. I know this can be a little bit offensive, but I want us to all think about this. The reason why we're not always completely, totally truthful at the bottom is because of fear and insecurity. We're afraid or we're insecure that if we tell the truth of what might happen. So I'll give you an example. The first thing you might be afraid of is something that could happen to you. So if I tell the truth here, if I'm totally honest, I might lose an opportunity. I might lose a relationship. Maybe by telling the truth, I'm going to create conflict. And the last thing that I want is conflict. Some of you love conflict, and so that's not your problem. But for others of us, we're conflict-averse. And so we actually shade the truth because we don't want to create a situation that becomes tense. So partly we fear telling the truth or being totally trustworthy because of something that could happen to us. But other times we shade the truth, we're not totally honest because we're afraid of what someone might think of us. If someone asks you how you're doing, Sometimes we don't respond honestly because we're afraid that if we say, I'm scared, I'm lonely, I'm anxious, that a person is going to say, oh, I, can't. I wasn't bargaining for all that. And so we share, I'm fine, everything's great. Or on the other hand, because we want to pad our reputation, when someone is asking us about what we've been up to or how we're doing, instead of giving honesty and our struggles and our weakness, we say, I did this and I did that and I finished this thing and we pat ourselves and we make ourselves appear far more amazing than we actually are. We're afraid and we're insecure. And so do you see, friends, how if we're going to become a community that actually takes our words seriously, it's not going to happen because we just try harder to be more reliable and more truth-telling. We have to go much deeper. The only way that we become a kind of community that speaks with such trustworthiness and truthfulness is if we have a love and an identity that is so secure that we speak as those who have nothing to fear. That's what we need. A love and an identity so secure that we speak as those who have nothing to fear. Where can such love, where can such an identity come from? Let me read to you a verse from the Gospel of John. This is chapter 1 and verse 14. It says this, The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hear what John is saying. Who is Jesus Christ? He is God's word. He is literally the word of God spoken to you. He is the word of God spoken to us. And what does that word consist of? Well, John tells us grace and truth. And friends, here's my thesis for today. Until you hear God's word of grace and truth to you in the person of Jesus, 
you'll never be able to use your words for grace and truth in the lives of people around you. We have to first realize we've been spoken to with God's grace and truth so that we can become a community that does the same. So think with me, truth and grace. First, truth. What does that mean? Well, it means that God sees you to the bottom. God sees all the things that you're afraid of anyone else ever seeing. All the stuff that you would be terrified if it ever became public, Jesus sees it. He sees the truth about you. And yet, his word is also one of grace. Grace is forgiveness instead of guilt. It's love instead of isolation. It's security instead of shame. And on the cross, at the end of his life, when Jesus dies, do you know what that is? It's the grace and truth of God coming together in sacrificial love. Because on the cross, Jesus says, here's the truth. Your sin, your misuse of words, your selfishness was so severe that I had to die for you. But on the cross, we also see God's grace. You were so loved and so accepted that he was glad to do so. The cross is the ultimate picture hanging over all the universe of the word of God, which is grace and truth. You are seen to the bottom, and yet you are loved to the sky. You are totally safe and totally seen. That's what we all long for. That's what we all want. That's what we all need. To be truly ourselves and to know that we're loved anyway. And on the cross, that's what God and Jesus has accomplished. And John is saying, Jesus is declaring, if that truth goes into the center of your soul, then you become a person who can go out into the world and your yes can be yes and your no can be no. Let me practically apply this before we come to our time of response. If you really heard the word of Jesus to you, if you really believed God's word of grace and truth in Jesus, if you knew that on the cross, Jesus saw you to the bottom and yet loved you to the sky, what would that mean? What would that produce in you? What would that produce in our community? Four things, and then we'll be done. First, we'd be able to apologize quickly. All of us misuse our words. We all say things that hurt people, and we all have a tone sometimes that hurts people in the way we say things. And a Christian is one who realizes their identity is so secure in Jesus that when we hurt another person with our words, we can say, I'm sorry, that was wrong. Please forgive me. We can be a community that says sorry. Second thing, if we took this seriously, what would it mean? We could finally be our real selves. Christian community is meant to be a place where you can take the mask off. When someone says, how are you doing? You can say, this is how I'm doing. I'm all messed up. I'm so fearful. I'm so anxious. Or I'm having a great time. Whatever it is. But we can answer honestly. Because we're safe. Not just with each other, but in the presence of God. And so we can model for a, a place like London. A place that prides itself on reputation and appearing like you have everything together we can say, actually, no, it's safe to be broken. It's safe to acknowledge weakness. We can finally be our real selves. Third thing, if we really heard God's word of grace and truth to us, third, we could be a community that makes and keeps promises. 
Some of us are way too slow to make promises. The reason is we want to keep our options open. We're afraid if we commit to something that something better might come along in a day or two. And so on one hand, we can make promises, but on the other hand, we can actually keep them. We can say that even when it's hard, even when it's costly, I'm going to stay committed. And so the promises we made become true and trustworthy and reliable. If we say we're going to be there, we are. Even if it costs us something. Because we're so secure in our identity in Jesus. Fourth, last, we can be a community that ventures out and has hard conversations. Again, some of you are very conflict-averse. But, uh, uh, excuse me, some of you love conflict <laughs> and you don't need this encouragement. But the rest of us, many of us are actually quite conflict averse. We would be afraid to challenge someone, to have a hard conversation, to say, I need to call you out on something. And the reason we're afraid to do that is because if we do, they might not receive it well, or they might not like us, or that relationship might be fractured. Those are all real things and very important. But sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for another person is have that hard, unpredictable, and messy conversation. And the gospel, the good news of God's word of grace and truth in Jesus, gives us the kind of inner security and identity to be able to step out as brothers and sisters and have those conversations that are messy and unpredictable and often a little scary. You see, this is the kind of community that we could be if we heard God's word of grace and truth to us. And so let's hear that word now as we come to this time of response and as we give ourselves to Jesus afresh. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this opportunity we've had to think about our words, think about how we speak to each other. And now, as we always do coming into this time of response, we ask for the power of your spirit to be so palpable, so present, that we would become a community that isn't just informed, but transformed that we would be healed, that we would so experience Jesus today that we actually speak differently from here on out. Some of us have a lot of confessing to do. Some of us have a lot of repenting to do. But we all need to gaze upon Jesus more clearly. And so God, now through these songs, through this time of response, help us see Jesus. Help us to experience grace and truth because of what Jesus did on the cross. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. This is a time of response. For those of you at home, sing, stand as you feel led. For all of us here, respond, even though we can't yet sing. You can stand, you can kneel, you can stay seated, but use this time to experience the word of grace and truth to you in Jesus as it transforms us into a community that reflects Christ in this city. Let's respond now.